Good morning. Uh, my name is Alex. I uh, uh, am not the pastor here if you're visiting. Uh, I'm a friend of your pastor, Bryce, because uh, he and I used to work together in this ministry called RUF, uh, where he did it at Utah, and I continue to do it at uh, USC in downtown Los Angeles. And so um, we are, uh, it's my understanding, you have been going through the Gospel of Mark and looking at the life of Jesus. And so we're going to continue, I'm going to dive into this with you and look at Mark chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you can turn there uh, and begin looking at verse 18. This is a, um, a section of Mark's gospel where Jesus is uh, getting towards the end of his ministry and uh, Mark records a group of interactions and sort of questions and arguments that uh, Jesus has with several groups of people. And I want to look at with you this morning his argument and his conversation uh, with the Sadducees. And so uh, Mark tells us this in verse, in verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And then the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they all rise again, Whose wife shall we, will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. Would you pray with me real quick? Lord, as we turn your attention uh, to your word, would you uh, meet us in this moment? Meet us in our stress. Meet us in our pain. Meet us in our loneliness. Meet us in our doubts, in our own questions, in our own arguments. And make Jesus more tangible and more beautiful to us. Through Him, in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, when we moved to uh, Southern California, in the first six months, we took our children uh, to Disneyland. And uh, one of the traditional uh, climactic things, I have three little boys is I took the older two and we stood in line uh, for Space Mountain. And while we're in line, my um, middle son just sort of kept asking, hey, what, are, what is this ride about? And I just kind of kept saying, it's, you know, it's fun. Uh, is this a big deal? No, you'll be fine. And we kind of sat in line going back and forth on this. And I just told him it's, it's an exciting ride that boys should go on. And so we get on the ride and uh, it's quite an experience because I don't hear anything from him 
for the whole like you know two minutes and thirty seconds you're on the ride, and then we walk off the ride, and you know how they take pictures of you on the roller coaster that encapsulate maybe how the ride is going for you, and uh, we walk over, and this is the picture that was there of my child. <laughs> And so my wife takes this picture and she put it on her Instagram and captioned it. We may have forgot to tell him this was a roller coaster in the dark. <laughs> and the point is, he had absolutely, you know, understandably, no idea what this was about. And what the Sadducees are doing right here is, is they're highlighting a constant problem with Jesus. That despite him saying over and over and over again to people, I have come to serve, I have come to die, I have come to be risen again, no one still at this point in, in his ministry knows what he is about. And the interesting thing about today in 2018 is I don't think many people in the church truly know what Jesus is about. And I would ask you, what do your neighbors think Jesus is about? What do your co-workers think Jesus is about? Because are there assumptions and are there thoughts and are your thoughts reflective of how Jesus would describe himself? Because what's going to happen in this text is the Sadducees, though they've heard him teach, though they've seen him do things, have no understanding still what he is. They want to figure out what he's about through a question and through an argument. And so I want to come away this morning with you having sort of a reflective maybe even pressed a little bit to think, really, who is Jesus about? And let's look at it this way. There's a question in this text, and then there's an answer. So there's a question that tells us something about ourselves, and then there's an answer given that tells us something about Jesus. First, there's a question that tells us something about uh, ourselves. So this whole interaction uh, of for Jesus is in the middle of uh, Jesus being asked by different groups of people different questions. And these are the Sadducees. Now, who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were a, the upper sort of aristocracy of the Jewish people. If you don't know about Jewish history, when the Romans overtook the Jewish people, they sort of began to split into five sort of political groups amongst the Jewish and how they would relate to the Roman people. And what the Sadducees were is they wanted to sort of hold on to some of their Jewish heritage, but they more than anything wanted to connect and thrive in the Roman culture. So particular to them and favorable to them was any way that they could move up and connect with the aristocracy of the Roman culture. And so things like believing in the resurrection for them were tossed out to the side. We're told in uh, Acts 23.8, it says the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And they didn't believe in the resurrection for a couple reasons. One, because it was a major threat to the Roman uh, government. The Romans viewed anybody who believed in the resurrection as difficult to control. Because if you think that there's more to this life than this life, then the only thing that they could use to control you, which is threatening your own life, rendered them powerless. And so anybody who believed in the resurrection was a danger to them. And the Sadducees desperately wanting to move up in the culture just refuse to believe things like that. And so when they come to Jesus with this question, there is, it's not just a theoretical abstract question. They're not just asking scientific or uh, me metaphysical history. They are asking a very personal political agenda question. And they come and they say, Jesus, 
okay, uh, we don't really think the resurrection is true, and we want you to admit that it's not true. And so they set up this idea, this illustration, of a man marrying to his wife, and he dies, and then once he dies, his brother has to marry her. And then once he dies, his brother has to marry her. And they're getting this, it's actually a brilliant question, because they're getting this from Deuteronomy 25, because this is what's called leveret marriage. Now let me explain this for a second. Moses had set up a system to try to be very merciful and very gracious to all of the women in their culture. Now, real quick, this is just a, a parenthetical aside. If you ever hear people talk about the Bible as suppressive to women um, or just patriarchal narratives, you don't know how to read the Bible. Because in this time and place, no one in any culture went extensively to the degree to try to protect women the way the Bible does. And so what Moses wanted to do is women whose husbands had died and left them no children immediately rendered them no status in society. And most of the time, if you lost your husband and you had no children, society treated you as used goods and you were as good as dead because you had no one who would ever marry you because you were already married, which means you were, quote, damaged goods in that society. And you had no way of being protected or provided for. And so Moses sets up this law that says, no, 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 if a woman dies and she has no children, it is required by law that her brother must marry her. And so what the Sadducees do is actually brilliantly come and they take Jesus' own paradigm, the ancient uh, scriptures, and they take the Pentateuch and they say, on your own grounds, we want to show you how ridiculous the resurrection is. And they come and say, okay, if you know, she marries all these people, who is her husband going to be in the afterlife? And this presents pretty, a pretty predicament for Jesus because it's, it sets the trap up this way. If he answers the question and says, well, uh, the first one, because it was a first one. No, 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 the second one, uh, maybe because that was the most meaningful. Or maybe it was the seventh one because that was her last one. And he sort of goes down that list. He begins to look ridiculous. The resurrection begins to look ridiculous because it still can't answer the question. And Jesus, if he answers along that line, will immediately lose all of the Sadducees, all of the aristocracy, and he'll have no influence on anyone who thought of the scriptures in this way. But if he looks at the Sadducees in this question and is, and is caught and has no answer, and says, I, I, I don't know, the resurrection, the afterlife is sort of stupid. I, I sort of agree with you. Then everyone who he's been ministering to, all of the poor, all of the downtrodden, who have become attracted to Jesus' idea that he's going to usher in a kingdom that's full of hope, full of redemption. It means the life to come will redeem and renew the life that you've been in. He loses them if he sides the other way. So it's almost like they ask him a question that has no good answer. Because if he answers one way, he loses all the wealthy, influential people in society. If he answers the another way, he loses all the poor and the downtrodden in society. Now, why are they asking him this question? Here's why they're asking him this question. Because in the section before this, if you look at if you have a Bible before you, the section before has the Pharisees asking Jesus a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And they're asking him, Jesus 
Are you going to start a revolt? Are you going to start a revolution? And Jesus shoots down their question. Now, the Pharisees were people in the society who very much wanted to hold on to their Jewish culture and believe everything literally that uh, the Bible taught. And they separated them. They were political enemies from the Sadducees. So the Sadducees are looking at this situation and going, Jesus, okay. Now, if you shoot down the Pharisees, those old conservatives, those people who believe all the Bible, if you separate yourself from them and shoot them down, we want to know if you are on our side. That is, they say, if you are the enemy of our enemy, does that make you our friend? And behind this question, you see, is a tremendous power grab. When I was uh, with my wife in the, um, the birth of our second child, she had to be rushed to uh, an emergency C-section. And we're sitting there in the uh, hospital, and I'm holding her hand, and the anesthesiologist walks in. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And she says to him, she goes, what's your name? And the man's like taken back. And she goes, where'd you go to medical school? <laughs> and he's like, you may have heard it. It's called Harvard. And she says, do you know what you're doing? And I, I, I'm, begin, like, I'm beginning to be embarrassed because this man's looking at me like, what's wrong with your wife? Of course, I want to look at him and was like, what's wrong with you? Don't you do with like pregnant women all the time? <laughs> but it, the idea, you know, is she keeps questioning all these things. And I begin to go like, why is she doing this? And I began to realize, well, because there's a lot of fear. And there's a lot of unsettling moments going on for her right now. And these questions are expressing something deeper going on. And what's going on for these Sadducees is they're not, again, they're not just asking this question to ask it. There is a deep longing and need for power and to protect their own comfort that's pressing this question. And oh my goodness, do we need to think about this and address this in society today. Because for us, we have an enormous tendency to come to anything significant in life, anything big, and want to ask it through the lens of, will this allow me to remain as comfortable as I presently live? Or will this allow me to maintain the power that I already have and the status that I already have in society or in my neighborhood? Or will it cost me these things? Because if it costs me these things, I want to explain it away. And all of us have like one or two things with Jesus where we really will have questions about it and we want to explain it away because we, we just don't want to deal with it. I mean, it may be, it may be something in your past that you've, done, that you've had or you've done that you will not acknowledge to anybody. You will not acknowledge to Jesus. You will not ever let anybody go there because it will cost you your comfort and power. Or it could be the idea of how Jesus really thinks about the poor and the outcast and the oppressed truly in our society. That we want to explain it away with politics. Because why? Because we do not want to lose our comfort and power. Or it could be Jesus' opinion on what he has to say about money or what he has to say about sexual ethics. That we do not want to listen to what he has to say. We want to explain it away. We want to explain it away with questions because we do not want to lose our power or our comfort. And whatever we want to explain away, 
whatever we continue to have questions about, listen, that is our power grab. That is one place in our life that we will not lose power. And whatever your power grab is, that's your real God. That's the God who you bow down to. That's the God who you will worship at all costs and you will sacrifice for. And you will not give up for anybody else. And that's what the Sadducees are coming with in this question. We will not lose this power in society. And so answer this question for us that remains and gives us the comfort that we want. What is your question? What's the power grab in your life that you will not let Jesus answer? Because this is where he comes into and answers this question. That's the question. But here's, secondly, the answer that Jesus gives. Now, it doesn't say in our text, but if you go to Matthew's Gospel and you read this exact same passage, it says at the end of it, they were astonished with his answer and left silent. So what Jesus has to say here, listen, it isn't just sufficient. It left everyone astonished. It left everyone quiet. And it left them with either expectations that were exceeded or disappointed. And here's, here's the answer. I'll give you two in three parts. Jesus says, no, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So this, this question, this power grab that the Sadducees have, he says this to them. This is what I'm about. No, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So first he says no. Yeah, again, if you look back at the text, the, the Sadducees are trying to uh, make Jesus take sides. And they're coming at him and saying, Jesus, are you like the traditional Pharisees who take the Bible literally, uh, who believe all those things that are in there, or are you like us, the sophisticated, smart people, uh, the progressive people who don't really believe those things literally, who just take the valuable things and apply them to our life? Which one are you? And Jesus' immediate response to this is, you are in error. Literally in the Greek, it's one adverb that just says, no. No. And what do we learn here? Jesus is saying right away, I'm not like you. And I'm not like you. And you cannot pin me down into your categories. You see, the Sadducees are coming to Jesus and saying, you've got to fit our categories. You've got to fit our kingdom. And the Pharisees have been saying the same thing. You've got to fit into our political, social kingdom. And Jesus looks at both the conservatives and the progressives, the ones who want to remain literal with the Torah and those who want to merge and fit into the Roman aristocracy. And he says, I'm not like you, and I'm not like you, and I'm not like either of you. And you cannot come to me and pin me down like this. And with our present political culture that regularly uses biblical language to address ethics and social issues, uh, and pressing us to be more and more passionate about finding people and wanting to know which side are you on. We have to sit with this. And I have to say, as I press you on this for about the next two minutes, I'll admit this is very, very uncomfortable for me. Because I know where we are in society. And probably most of you read the news and read society and read the world with more and more black and white fundamentalist feelings. 
that want to read a headline, that hear a social issue, hear something, and immediately pigeonhole to somebody that they're either on this side or they're either on this side. They either care about these kinds of people or they either care about these kinds of people. And we read pastors and we read politicians and we read musicians and we hear them say sound bites. And we immediately want to put them in categories and go, up, oh, they're conservative, up, oh, they're progressive. And we want to say, but that then is not really Jesus' kingdom. Or that's somebody I can never be in fellowship with if they're passionate about this. Because Jesus, if you really get him, is truly about this. And he's really about this. And we become more and more stunned with people who could possibly vote this way or support this idea or be behind this issue because we think, how can you be behind that and press that and call yourself a Christian? Or call yourself a good person and decent citizen in this society. Because if you care about those things, and you care about true people, those never go together. We were finding ourselves more and more walking down this road. About a year and a half ago, the week after the uh, presidential election, I was slated to preach at this church uh, in West L.A., <coughs> And they had asked me to do this months before, uh, after Trump was elected. And um, the text that they had asked me to preach on, and this is West L.A., so hang with me on the social demographic of this. Uh, the text that they had asked me to preach on, again, this is all either coincidental or providential, depending on what you believe, um, was Jesus calms the storm. And... Um, and so I think, okay, we're in a country that's in a uh, massive uh, reaction to what just happened on Tuesday, and I've got to preach on Jesus coming into situations and calming a storm. And so truly what I try to say, what we try to say in that service, is that there's a bigger storm in this world, and Jesus is Lord over all the storms. And the biggest storm that you'll ever face is the holiness of, in the face of God. And Jesus is both the Lord and the path through that storm. And after that sermon, I got so many emails from conservative people going, how could you not celebrate and support this presidential triumph? And I got so many emails from so many other people, some, so many liberal people saying, how could you get up there and not condemn this presidential election? How could you stand up there in the name of Jesus and not condemn this? And sadly, I've seen so many people on both sides leave that church in the last couple of years because they didn't stand enough behind the presidential agenda and because they didn't condemn enough the presidential agenda. And Jesus is coming right from this text in the middle of our culture right now and looking at both sides and says, I'm not with either of you. I didn't come to join you. I came to take over. And I came to redefine hope and mission and life for you. And if you come to me trying to pigeonhole me and say, you must be like this, you must be like this, you don't get me. And so I want to ask you what I want to ask those people from that week. Are you more committed to your tribe or to Jesus' kingdom? Because if you're more committed to your tribe, then that's a power grab that you will constantly have one question in the back pocket 
that you will want to have Jesus fooled upon and make sure he answers it with your way. And here's how you know if you still have this power grab. If you can't find anything in the Christian life and in the life of this church that offends you, ask yourself this this morning. Where does Jesus offend me? Where does he rub me the wrong way? Where does he rub me socially the wrong way? Where does he rub me the wrong way with these kinds of people? Where does he rub me the wrong way with my personal, my personal life, my personal desires, my personal practices? If Jesus does not rub you the wrong way in any part of your life, that is a very bad sign. And it's a very bad sign that you have created your own Sadducean or Pharisaical Jesus who fits into your own kingdom and is carved out of your own desire and your own personal way that you want this world to be shaped. Because if you encounter the real Jesus, He will offend you and frustrate you in some part of your life. Because what should have happened after all this interaction with the Sadducees and the Pharisees is they should have come together and unified on this this principle. None of us get Jesus. None of us do. There are parts of him that we like and we want to follow, but there are other parts that are so offensive and so bothersome to us and will cost us so much power and comfort. I will never sacrifice that. But they should have come and said, none of us are willing to do this. But we have one thing in common. We don't get this man. Because if you claim to fully get Jesus, that's when you get to be bored with him. And that's when this begins to fade out of life and become less significant than your own comfort and power. Because something fascinating happens after this argument. Is that these two people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who hate one another, had no friendship, had no fellowship, had no connection to society, begin to come together on one thing. This man, Jesus, must go. So here's the question. Which is your Jesus? Is he like you? Or is he like he says himself, not like anyone who constantly frustrates you? Because he comes immediately to these people and he says, no. But secondly, he says, but you don't know the scriptures. Now this is where Jesus begins to nuke this question and argument about the afterlife. Because the crowds... Remember, they're astonished. And what he does is he comes to the Sadducees who had just used, remember, Deuteronomy 25. And they used Deuteronomy 25 to destroy the idea of the resurrection because one, Jesus believed in the Old Testament. And two, that was the only part of Scripture that they believed in. So the Sadducees did not believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in the Psalms or any of the wisdom literature. But they did believe in the first five books of of the Bible. So they come with this idea from Deuteronomy 25, and Jesus says, yes, I'll prove it to you. Because the scriptures that you claim to to, to argue that from, you actually don't know them. And so he quotes this text from Exodus 3.6, which is where God comes to Abraham, excuse me, to Moses, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what Jesus is getting at in quoting this text is he's trying to elaborate on a very well-known Old Testament motto that, is, that would say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that teaches us that this mentality that God is a personal, relational God of promise. Let me expound on that. I mean, he's personal and relational. Look, he says, I am 
the God of Abraham. That is, Jesus is saying, look, the God of the afterlife, the God of heaven and the resurrection, he's not this abstract like deity. He's not this God who is just, you know, a creator and he's just up there, nor is he some sort of Greek philosophy like the Logos. That's the meaning, but you can have no tangible relationship with. He is not just the God of humans or the God of animals. He's the God of personal people. He was the God of Abraham, and he was the God of Isaac, and he was the God of Jacob, which means this is not a God that you can just know about. This is a God you can know personally. That it's a God who you can have an intimate relationship, a God who you can know the ins and outs of, and who can know the ins and outs of you. And this is not a God who just you connect with, have your sins forgiven, and go back into your life. It's a God who guides you, who you walk around with life with, who you become intimate with. He's a God who you begin to realize is the way that you long for all relationships to be. I mean, don't we long for relationships to be things, to be people who come into our life and they know us from the bottom out and they like us and they accept us and they're involved in our daily life. My wife calls, uh, you know, describes this as my people. There are friends, but then there are my people. There are, there are those that know when my children's birthdays are. They know when I'm hurting. They know how to care for me when I'm hurting. They know when I'm hurting, I need a day by myself. But they know what will help me is to bring a meal and just drop it off with a note that says, love you. They know I don't want to be asked about it because I don't know how to answer for it. They, don't, they know I don't want to ask or be asked the question, how are you doing? Because often there are answers that I know even know how to give myself. I want people like that. And, and Jesus is saying, do you understand that God of Christianity is like that? That he's not just this abstract creator or this deity who's distant from us and hopes it goes well. He is our people. We are his people. And he wants to come in intimately, walk with you in your life the way you long for community and people and a spouse to walk with you in your life. But I am, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It means that personal connection is something that will never, ever end. You know, he says, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My mother died almost uh, three years ago now. And uh, I'll have, you know, if you've had a spe- uh, someone significant die, like a parent or a brother or uh, a child or something like that, it's, it's hard to come to terms with the idea that they're not still with you. And you never want to, it's just painful to say, I had a mother. Uh, or she used to be my mother. Because you want, you, when you tell stories about her, you want to say, my mo- you still want to say, my mother, my this. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you get into a relationship with this God, you never become, you, he was your God. It never becomes, you were his people. That this is a relationship that's marked by a covenant that begins and has no end. Uh, before I came to Southern California, I was uh, at Penn State University doing ministry. And uh, there was this guy called the Willard Preacher who would uh, stand outside the Willard Building uh, every day, or I think maybe three days a week, between uh, noon and uh, 
1 p.m. And he would just stand out there and preach. And he would sort of do the same thing every time where he would sort of describe to students uh, how broken and how messed up they were in college. And he would always argue along the lines of, you know life goes on forever, and you know there's an afterlife. Therefore, you need to know this God and deal with it. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, if you get to know this God, and you begin to realize He is a God who will be your people, and will know you intimately, then you will know it never ends and life goes on forever. He says, that's what the scriptures teach. But thirdly, as their mouths begin to drop open, he says, lastly, you don't know the power of God. See, there's uh, one more part to this question that the Sadducees that we haven't uh, addressed, and that's the Sadducees have asked, uh, Will there be marriage in heaven? And Jesus' immediate answer to this is no. And when I used to read this, uh, I used to get so annoyed and frustrated with Jesus because it, it just sort of felt like he was setting up heaven and eternity to be this like eternal junior high youth group dance where we're all just going to come side hug and we'll be pals. And we'll just sing praise songs and it'll be so great. And, but that can't be what he means. Because he says, you don't know the power of God. Which means this. Relationships in eternity can't be less intimate and powerful than they are right now. And so when Jesus says, there will not be marriage in heaven, that in no way can it mean that the intimacy and the joy that, forgive me, that we taste in sex, that we taste in rich friendship, that we taste in beautiful, beautiful commitment, it can't be less than that. And so it's got to be way more than that. Why? There will be no marriage at the resurrection because at the resurrection, you will be married to Jesus. And that will be way more intimate. That will be way more powerful. That will be way more committed than anything you ever tasted in the best moments here on earth. And I think that teaches us a couple things. One, it tells us that all of our relationships here and now are nothing more than a shadow of something to come. Is any uh, interest to you at all that throughout the New Testament, Jesus is described, you know, at one point we are described as his bride. Uh, other parts, Jesus is always saying the Father and I am the Son. Uh, the book of Hebrews describes him as our brother. Uh, at one point, Jesus describes himself as our neighbor. Why does Jesus do this? He describes us to this because what happened is, do you understand, God gave us relational categories intimate categories like friends, like brothers, like parents. Not just as things in this world so that we would know, we would have a foretaste of how God would relate to us and care for us and communicate to us that this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, again, he isn't just some God who we will walk into a courtroom and he'll stand there with a gavel and says, tell me about your life. It will be like a father. It will be like a brother. It will be like a spouse. It will be like your best friend.
who's coming into your life with open arms and with safety and with love and mercy and grace to greet you in a way that you have never, ever been greeted anymore in every one of your powerful relationships in this world are meant to point you to that moment, which should do a couple things. One, it ought to take the pressure right now off of your relationships in this world. Often, the disappointment that we have in some of our relationships right now is because we're putting eternal weight on relationships that are only meant to be a signpost of what's to come. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, most people, if they'd really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world. All of your powerful relationships in this world are meant to point to what is to come. And when Jesus says there is no marriage in heaven because you don't know the power of God, he's saying, listen, what you're asking for is coming but a much more powerful, rich way that would make you never want it if you were to have it. Here's the second takeaway from that that I think helps us. For those of you who have had broken, sad relationships, whether it be your parents or a marriage that fell apart or a marriage that never happened, this means that you are missing out on nothing in this world. That what is coming from Jesus and what the resurrection promises means that your loss in this world will feel nothing more than like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. And you will spend the joy and intimacy and commitment of something that will never, ever, ever, ever register that you forgot and missed out on something. There was a girl I had in ministry one time. Her name was Danny. And Danny came to our ministry for a couple of years. And uh, she came, but she had not yet confessed Christ and been baptized. And so I came to her one time and was talking to her about this. And she said her major hang-up to becoming a Christian was that when she was a little girl, her mom died. She walked in the room, her living room, and her mom was just dead in a bark lounger in her house. And her mom was everything to her life. She was her best friend. It was a very powerful, intimate friendship. And so losing her mom was one of the most, if not the most defining thing in her life. And when she began to come to our ministry and heard about, heard about Jesus, she began to realize, my mom doesn't believe these things. Or she didn't believe these things before she passed away. And so I don't know if I want to go spend eternity in a place that I'm pretty sure my mom is not. And as she told me that, I began to ache for her and think, I have, what must it feel like? What fear must that feel like? To know that the most powerful relationship you have in this world, you may not ever taste again. And I reached out and I said, Danny, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings or diminish your mom. But I promise you this, the resurrection of Jesus is so powerful that when you get there and you taste Him 
and your mom's not there, you will not care. And that's not in any way a diminishing of your mom. It's just that Jesus will be so beautiful and he will be so powerful and he will be everything a million times over that your mom ever was to you in a way that will make you not even be able to almost remember you had a mom in this world. And that's the power of God. And Jesus says, do you know what that is? Because if you knew what that was, if you knew that power, you wouldn't sit here and wonder, is there going to be a resurrection? You would know that kind of God and go, there has to be a life after this that goes on and on forever because what we have, what we have a foretaste now, it's not possible for that to end. Can, can you come in this moment to that Jesus? Do you know what, what that He is about that? Do your neighbors know that He is about that? That that's who He is? Or do they think that He's about some Sadducee agenda or some political agenda? Do they know the Scriptures? Do you know the Scriptures and the power of God? Because I invite you now to come and taste and come to Jesus and go away with renewed hope and mission. Let me pray for us. Jesus, that we would take you. Thank you for arguing with us for not just letting us be a people that can just utter things and say things uh, like sound bites that can pigeonhole you, that you are more beautiful, more brilliant, more powerful in a way that leaves us mouth-watered and astonished for what may come to just simple questions. Lord, for anyone in this room who doesn't know what you're about, would you open their eyes and ears to what they're about? to what you're about and show them and make him make yourself more beautiful in Jesus name amen